0: Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm Matthew Thiel, a financial advisor with RPA Wealth Management. Joining me as always is Joshua Wintersweck. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm ready for today's show, Matthew. Great, great. And back on today's show after a little break is RPA Wealth Management President Brent Pasqua. Brent, welcome back. Thanks, guys. I'm excited for today's show and I'm
1: excited to be back with you guys.
0: Yeah, we're excited to have you back, and we've got a, a really good show lined up for our listeners today. Um, so we have a, a a lot of high net worth clients, right? I would say they have at least a million to probably three, four, or five million in assets to potentially invest. Is that is that correct, Brent?
1: Yeah, that's a fair assumption on on a percentage of the clients. Yes,
0: and a lot of these clients, I think we meet with. I, at least I find when I'm working with them that they're missing some of the basic building blocks of financial planning. Like, they've done a great job. They've saved a ton of money. They've worked really hard. Maybe they bought or sold a few businesses, and they have a nice nest egg. But those basic building blocks of their financial plan were never put into place. Do you see that as well, Josh?
2: Yeah, and I think that a lot of the questions about just foundational financial planning come up right from the very beginning of meeting any sort of friend, prospect, referral. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and so that's what the today's show is for. It's those basic building blocks of your financial plan that you probably missed um, that really should be taught in you know elementary school, junior high, high school, so that everybody gets these fundamentals in place. Um, to start, uh, Josh, what's the difference between I guess what, like an investment plan or a financial plan? That's a
2: really, that's a really good question, um, and they are very different. Uh, what we were talking about, just an investment plan and a financial plan. An investment plan is basically a plan to tell you what to do with your portfolio, how to invest it, and uh, the plan basically stops there, would you agree?
0: Yeah, so I guess an investment plan, or are you saying like someone hands you a a 10-page portfolio proposal with a lot of pie graphs and maybe some mutual funds and you don't quite understand the name and they call them like core equity or global equity?
2: Yeah, and it probably somewhere says Morningstar in those 30 pages and historical historical returns. Yeah, historical returns, asset allocation, and a long
0: pitch. Right. And usually they point to like the year 2008 or 2009 and be like, oh, look, this portfolio only lost 10% during during the market crash. What a great portfolio this is for you.
1: And don't a lot of like advisors try and compare those with their portfolio? They're, They're presenting a new one versus an old one.
0: Yeah, yeah, so they they bash. Yeah, yeah, I've heard a lot of that. So yeah, so that's an investment plan? Yep. What's a financial plan?
2: A financial plan is everything we've discussed on all of these podcasts, which I love, which is actually the complete financial picture. So we're starting with all of the foundational things that we're starting with today. We're not only talking about investments, but we're talking about taxes and how that intertwines with your investments and retirements and making sure that you're protected and your net worth is protected and spousal planning and estate planning. So obviously there's a lot to a financial plan and we'll discuss some of those foundational topics today too, um, but a lot more in depth, a lot more tailored than just talking about the actual portfolio, which is just one piece of a financial plan.
0: Absolutely, yeah, the investment portion, I, I guess, for us when we're doing our financial planning process with clients is usually about one or two meetings. Yeah, and I wanted to mention that too, so the
2: investment plan, when you're doing full financial planning, the investment plan is built into the financial plan,
0: It's one aspect of that. Right. Um, anything else to add, Brent, on financial planning?
1: I think what's important that people realize when you're going through the financial planning process is you're determining a lot of your foundational pieces in retirement, like where your cash flow is going to come from, when you may be starting social security, when you may be triggering other parts of your income, maybe it's a pension. Um, You're looking at your expenses, paying things off, when your debts are going to reduce. Obviously, like Josh said, uh, your taxes become a big part of that. Maybe you're doing Roth conversions or maybe you're looking at your requirement of distributions and also some of the risk management that's involved in your financial plan. But then at the end of the day, you know, legacy planning is important to a lot of people and then you start discussing part of that estate plan. So there's a lot of detail that goes into financial planning.
0: Absolutely. And for the listeners who don't know legacy planning, that's essentially how you plan, what you plan to do with your money after you pass. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, you're planning either distributions of your estate while you're alive or and when once you pass away. And there's a lot of planning options that you do have both while you're alive and for when you pass away that you can start to put in place. So those assets can be
2: distributed properly to the kids.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have
2: one more thing to kind of add to, like, before we get into some of these Foundational like steps of financial planning 101, um, like who's financial planning for? Everyone. Right? Ram, would you agree? Absolutely. And well, I think I have a lot of questions from you know friends and family that you know think that financial planning might only be for the ultra wealthy. I mean, is that true? No, absolutely not. I mean, people of all ages and all stages need different financial
1: planning. That now the level of in depth you may get may be different for each person or different stages. But financial planning can and should benefit everybody.
0: Yeah, it should. And it's one of those things where it was actually for so long held out for only the wealthy. But, you know, recently we've seen a rise in, you know, under call it 35 people searching for financial planning.
2: And and doing really good research and finding a financial planner, how to get the right financial advice for that demographic. But I just wanted to acknowledge that because I feel like. A lot of people don't know where to search it out or how to find financial planning, um, and it is for everybody. It's not just for the the ultra wealthy. There's just so many ways we can benefit someone's life at every age with financial planning. Just kind of want to let and, the audience know that. And I think as we've sort of detailed out what the what you're going through in the financial planning,
1: whether it's cash flow expenses and so on, people also understand what the process is like, and that's. First, getting a really good understanding of what the client may have, then laying out all the strategies and options that they have, then you begin to implement that plan, and then you monitor it, you know, and accountability becomes such a big part because you can tell someone, hey, go do these things, and then, but they need your, to hold their hand, you need them to, have, they need help implementing it, and then they need accountability to make sure the plan is continuing to work, so I think the process is very specific, it's so helpful for people at all stages of life. Yeah, I agree.
0: Personal financial training—you could, you, exactly. you know, you need to do ten reps of the bicep bar, but your biceps start hurting at rep eight, so you stop. Right. But really, a personal trainer is going to push you to get those full ten reps in.
1: I mean, what's a more effective hour working out? Is it working out with a trainer or working out by yourself?
0: You know. Yeah, a trainer. Working out by yourself is useless. Yeah, absolutely agree. You're basically going there to get away from your wife, or your friends, or your kids. <laughs> All right, well let's start with those bedrocks. Um, so the first thing where I think we see a lot of people not being so good on it is uh, budgeting. Josh, you wanna get us started with budgeting? Yeah, you can
2: get us started. Uh, one just general rule, we've talked about this rule in the past of kind of how to start a budget. And, and before we actually get into the rule, I think that creating awareness, so tracking your spending is the first step to any budget, to any real budget. So. If you don't have anything to track your expenses, whether you're doing it manually or you're using software like we've talked about on other podcasts to tracking those monthly expenses and income, that's your first step. Would you guys agree? Sure. The next would to find an actual rule or rule of thumb or creating a budget, sitting down and writing that down, one that we like to use is the 50-30-20 rule. And the 50-30-20 rule states that 50% of your income or excuse me, your expenses should be going towards your needs. Um, And your needs would include obviously housing, if you need to drive a car, insurances that you also need. And then the 30% of your expenses is going towards your wants. So this is everything extra that you do. So going out to eat, whether it's entertainment, concerts, and then the 20% should be saved. So 20% of your income should be saved um, on a monthly basis. And really, I like to start with that percentage, so working with your way backwards of calculating how much you should be saving and setting that as your goal uh, with this 50, 30, 20 rule. Anything to
0: add to that, Matt? I'm big on kind of the happiness budgeting, right? I know said Seti talks about it, but spending on experiences you love and that are actually gonna bring joy and then cutting expenses elsewhere that don't bring joy. Great example is going out to eat. If you're big foodie, you know, go, go spend $200 at a meal. If you like going to sporting events, splurge for the extra seat, the better seats, right? I mean, your TV's better than sitting in the nosebleeds, right? Right. Brent, do you have anything on, on budgeting?
1: Uh, I think the big thing with dredging to me is if people just spent the extra few hours, whether it's a month or every other month or every couple of weeks doing it, they could actually work a little bit less doing things they don't want to do by saving the money they can by just budgeting. I mean, so many people go work extra hours at work or they have to put in overtime or they do these extra jobs to make extra money. But if you actually spend a little bit of time doing your budgeting, you can save so much money that way.
0: Yeah, and I think when you do kind of start creating expense awareness, what will happen is you'll, you'll start looking at your monthly expenses and you'll be like, man, how did I spend $8,000 this year on, at Amazon.com? Right. Like, what on earth did I buy? Then you go back through and you look through your Amazon order history. like, Man, I, I guess I really didn't need that.
1: Yeah, and I guess my question would be is, you know, is it harder to budget now than it was 50 years ago, or is it actually easier? Because I know it's more complicated in terms of, you know, there's a, people have more accounts. It's not white. Like, you know, you're not saving money in just an envelope, but you have all these budgeting apps and tools and things that you can do that makes it so much easier.
0: It's easier to track it, but it's probably also easier to spend your money nowadays. I mean, you go online, two clicks, and you're getting your package in two days.
2: Right. But I also think like tracking expenses and you you have to be willing to use the tools because look at how many useless apps you probably have on your phone. Right. Like how many apps do you really use? And is that tool just another app that you're not using? Yeah, so absolutely. Yes, the tools are better, um, but it's also, you know, our, in today's world, we don't get a statement that actually showed us what we spent each month. I mean, the old statements that were sent to your home, when you had to open them up, you looked at the bottom of the expense sheet, you could see everything that you spent that much. Or you bounced your checkbook. And you had to look at it almost. Because it came in the mail, right? You wanted to make sure. Now, I mean, you can go months potentially without looking at your expenses and seeing the total of what you spent monthly if you're not using those tools. I think that makes it kind of difficult. You have to commit to tracking your expenses and creating that awareness to yourself. That's very, very important. Yeah, and if you're working extra hours to make more money, why not spend the extra hours to budget
1: and
0: save yourself money? Right. Absolutely. Anything else on budgeting? No. All right. Let's move on to the next one. And, you know, we always are hammering this home, but an emergency fund. Uh, Brent, talk to us about an emergency fund.
1: Emergency fund is a great way for you to put money aside every single month to build up this side pool of money that's there for you in case of emergency. I mean, if you have to fix your roof, or you have car problems, or you have any issues that come up, because we all know we have financial issues that come up. We need money at some point in this. It always seems that the worst time you have these big expenses that just randomly pop up, you're not putting that money on a credit card. You have that six month or three month savings, and you're putting that cash aside into a savings account, and you're building that six months up.
0: Yeah, I think it's important and when we do say emergency fund, all we really mean is it's your savings account and you should have, you know, three to six months of your net income saved up. Uh, Josh, anything to add? No, I think it's extremely important. I think this is one
2: um, area that we see a lot of clients, you know, that we have to work on them with because they don't know what they should have in that emergency savings or in cash but I just think there's just so many reasons why you should have that three to six month bumper. I mean, even short term disability needs, you know, just time off, you don't know what's coming, you don't know what's life's going to bring, and so being properly prepared is gonna make sure your financial plan is, is well prepared for the future. So if you don't have three to six
1: months saved right now, I mean, what would be your suggestion on saving that money?
0: Figure out how much it is, so if it's, you know, $50,000 and then, Auto save it over the next, you know, two to five years. Right. And it does take a while to build a savings account. I mean, this is the state of California; expenses are high. Right. So maybe, maybe. it's you know five hundred a month. Maybe it's two fifty. Maybe it's a thousand dollars a month that you auto save into the account.
1: Mm-hmm. And part of that comes back down to budgeting, right? Because you got to see what you can auto save.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: So just because you put it in doesn't mean it's not going to come right back out. So.
0: Yeah. There's there's nothing worse than that, right? Putting a thousand in a month. But, oh, look, I'm pulling nine seventy out. Yep. That's the same idea.
2: You know, we have a lot of people ask, should I be investing, you know, that extra $500 I save?" but they don't have the appropriate emergency savings? No. Right. We should build the emergency savings first because the last thing we want to do is go dip into the investment when you don't have the emergency savings adequately, you know, funded. Absolutely. That could just end up costing you way more. And costing you money and taking away from return, which that's what your hopes were.
0: Yep. All right, let's move on. Let's start talking about reducing debt. And Josh, I always joke that you are the, kind of the debt slayer of the office. You're, you're our go-to guy for helping people get out of debt. You wanna kick this one off?
2: Yeah, I think we should just start with, with finding out or explaining the different types of debt. So there's bad debt.
0: What would bad debt be considered?
2: Bad debt is going to be, for example, Credit card debt. Unsecured debt that we've charged when we're just living over
0: our means. Yeah, credit card debt's really bad. And what are some characteristics that make it bad? Is it the interest rates?
2: Interest rates, late payment fees, penalties, there's really no help either. So, you know, financing on credit cards, they get, the interest is also variable. So, you know, coming up with a pay down strategy that makes it even more difficult. Um, they're typically going to have the highest interest rates out of the other two debts that we're going to talk about You know, in just a second. Um, so just credit card debt, as we, I'm sure you guys have seen, can just be so sort of detrimental to a plan.
1: I feel like having credit card debt is like driving down the street with your window down and just throwing cash out of the window. You might as well just keep throwing money out because those credit cards have such high interest rates that you're just giving money.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Or, uh, I, Josh, I know you watch Narcos. Remember Narcos? I don't know if it's season two or season three when Pablo starts burning the cash to keep his kids warm because it's cold when he's on the run. Yeah, I think it's season two. That was a good scene. Yep. It, yeah. Um, did you see that, Brent? Um, no. Yeah, so, yeah, that's exactly what you're saying. They're just burning your cash. Yeah,
2: yeah and I think credit cards are more of a tool for the short term. It's not a long-term financing solution, you know, so avoid the bad
3: debt.
0: Yes, I actually put all my spending on my credit card per month. I just pay it off at the end of the month, which is the difference with a lot of people. Sure, yeah.
2: And and it just can be, again, it comes back to like the budgeting and the awareness. Like you want to know how much you're spending so your credit card bill isn't more than you can actually pay back each month.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, What's a, a good debt? A
2: good debt is your home. Let's, let's take a mortgage for an example of good debt. So um, too many people are too quick to pay off the good debts. Um, just to kind of talk about that point, when you pay off your home, you're also making a large investment into that house. And when you pay, when you owe money on your home, you're making a leveraged bet on your home, right? Like the home's actually going to go up. Um, and home mortgages are typically your lowest interest rates. Right, or right now, we could talk about it, interest rates anywhere from 3.5% to 4.5%, 5%, depending on you know when you're listening to this. Um, so definitely, when we're talking about good debt and paying down good debt, let's take a bigger look at the whole debt situation before we make the assumption that we just want to always pay down good debt first.
0: Yeah, I see this all the time, and Brent, I know you see this too when you're working with clients, but... Let's say, you know, they've saved up, they have 250000 in the bank, they probably have retirement portfolios at $1 to $2 million, and for some reason, you know, maybe they have $100,000, left on the mortgage, they have that itch to pay the mortgage off. Sure. And what you're actually doing when you are doing that is you're taking good money, your 250000 and you're essentially throwing it at bad. Because right? there's an opportunity cost. You're now making an investment in that home, which probably isn't that good of an investment anymore.
1: Right. I think a lot of people have different opinions about that. But I think at the end of the day, one of the challenges too is if you were to ever need that $150,000 again, you can't really get it out of your house. Yes, there's ways you can take, you know, obviously a line of credit, but now you're borrowing money from the bank.
2: So it's not that easy to get back if you need 150000 again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's an opportunity cost. Yep. You're yeah, and that
2: asset isn't. It? Completely liquid. Right. Like, you're not going to sell your home if you need $100,000 for an emergency. I think the
1: what most people see value in, though, is not having to make that monthly mortgage payment. And once you get on a fixed income, like, hey, well, I don't have to pay $2,000 more a month. But what they don't know is, you know, you can take that 150000 aside and have that helping you make your mortgage. Right? There's lots of ways to structure it. But it, it's like you always say, Matt, it's mental accounting. Yeah, it is. But but there's a right way to do it, and there's a way that makes sense, and there's a number part to it. I think that's what
2: people lack is being able to calculate or knowing how to calculate it out.
0: Yeah, a lot of short-term thinking, I guess. Absolutely. Um, There's a lot of analytics
2: that need to go into that decision of understanding what the growth rates are with your home, what your expectation of your home is going to grow at, what your interest rate on your home is currently as well. Um, and I think just analyzing that debt is going to open up a lot of different options for you, whether if it's for retirement planning or just short-term planning. So, yeah, just making sure we're spending the time analyzing that good debt before we make a decision.
1: I don't know how many times in the last couple of months, whether being in, in client meetings with the client or being with you guys with clients, that I've heard, oh, I didn't think of that, or I didn't think of it that way, or I didn't, I didn't see that being an option, or I didn't know that was an option. And then you create these strategies that are so much more beneficial that they would never have ever thought of. And then you start implementing them. And those are life-changing events for people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it seems like a lot of those conversations, and probably because you know, the home is one of the biggest assets that our clients and people that inquire with us have. Right. But a lot of those um, you know, situations where clients it opens their eyes is around the home, right. right? Like should I be paying it off, should I be moving? Should I be refinancing, it just opens up a lot of doors for them. And I think when we're, like once we've built our client's financial plan, even when
1: when they're clients and we're doing ongoing reviews with them and we're doing updates with them, the strategies don't stop. The strategies are always ongoing. People's lives are always changing. I think that's what's so critical is that even though we're meeting with them every quarter, there's always new things happening and new strategies coming out and those are always life-changing events too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what would be considered, I guess, uh, neutral debt? Dun, dun, dun. Student loans. Oh, controversial debt. Yeah. You have a lot of mixed feelings
2: about student loans. Matt, actually, this is, this is a good topic. It, you're really good at talking about the student loan topic of, again, using that word opportunity cost of taking on student loan debt and you know projecting your future. This can going to get you fired up.
0: Maybe. Well, so here's the thing. If you're over the age of 50, you probably really didn't have to take out that large of a student loan. Um, but if if you are under the age of 50 and especially under the age of 45, you did have to take out a student loan most likely to go to school because the cost of college has been increasing so much. And the jury's really out on if taking debt to go to school is a good idea. And I think it has to... In my opinion, what I've seen working with clients is it matters based on what the job is that you're actually gonna go do. And are you going to be a teacher? The answer is yes. It probably doesn't make a lot of sense to take down more than six figures of debt going to an expensive school to becoming high school, elementary, even a private school teacher. The pay's just not there to support it. On the flip side, if you're thinking of becoming a surgeon, that probably makes sense, right? you're going to come out of school with probably about 500000 in debt. Your first year out of school, you'll probably make 500000 600000 a year. So that makes a ton of sense. On the legal side, another big profession where people take, take down lots of debt. Does it make sense? Yes, but probably below $100,000. Um, for every successful lawyer, there's 10 unsuccessful ones.
2: Yeah, I think like you're making great points, and what I hear from it as well, and we've we've talked about this a few times just in the office. It again is requiring us to do more research. Like you know, yes, I'd love to go to this prestigious school that's going to be hundred thousand dollars, and I know I want to be a teacher, doctor, lawyer doesn't matter. But doing more research of what am I expected to pay, right? Because I'm not planning just to call myself a, an attorney, a doctor, a teacher but planning and projecting what I'm going to be paid after that, how much debt I'm leaving or going to be exiting school with, and then continuing to build that financial plan before we've even started school. I know that's a lot to ask maybe for someone who's, you know, just getting out of high school or going back to school, but it, you can see how important it is because you could set yourself back for years by making the wrong decision with education and student loans. We're seeing it now.
0: Well, it's on the parents. Yeah. The parents actually need to help the kids make the decision because the kids aren't capable of making the decision. Sure. So it, it's on, on them, which is why I think it's important we talk about it on, on this retirement based show because I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this are, you know, helping their kids do right. this or maybe they're going to experience it with their grandkids shortly. And, you know, it's something you really have to think hard about. The state schools are fine.
2: Right. And just setting the right expectation, helping your children or grandchildren or... You know, even if it's a spouse understand and setting the right expectations for student loan debt.
0: Yeah, and then I mean I know I've seen this and am I'm sure you've seen this, but you know, you get the client who's in their early fifties and for some reason they're they're burned out of their career and they're going back to school and they're taking out a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand in debt. Right.
1: And then their expectations of what they're gonna make in the future is a little bit higher than what they probably is practical.
0: All right, so it's like, okay, well, you're gonna, ret- you still wanna retire at 65, but right. you're gonna have an extra 100,000 student loan debt? Yeah, I don't know. Right. You, I mean, you can't discharge it. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no way to get rid of it.
1: The thing that I'll say about all debt, whether it's good debt, bad debt, neutral debt, it's not a good idea of what your credit score is because if you're gonna go get a loan, whether it's a home loan or a car loan, your interest rate is so impactful on how much interest you're going to pay over the life of your house, do your homework and spend a little time as you're learning to budget and do spending time budgeting to know what your credit score is because that you're, again, just throwing money out the window if you're not paying attention to your credit score.
2: Yeah, great point. And, that, and there's so many tools that we've talked about. There's so many tools for tracking expenses, but there's so many tools for tracking your credit now, too. Sure. Um, I like Credit Karma is one that comes to mind. I think that's free, so yeah, like that. But you know, I agree with you 100%. It, it's so important for your overall financial success to understand and have a good credit score. Yeah, you and I worked on one where we were helping a client
1: get a loan, and the difference between loan A and, and loan B that the client was looking at was a difference of hundreds of thousands of dollars, that mm-hmm. they'd be paying an interest over the life of the mortgage.
2: It's so critical just to know what you're looking at and when you're dealing with loan or any type of loan nowadays yeah and it it keeps your options open but you're not stuck to one option because you're limited by your credit score so you can get creative with financing because the better your credit score the more willing everyone's going to lend you money absolutely you know the more you can shop the more you have better options so great point and uh, very important
0: absolutely yeah great point of focusing on the credit score all right so so far we've discussed budgeting emergency fund, and paying down debt or keeping debt to a minimum. After you have those three in place, we could start talking about saving for retirement. And really the rule of thumb where, where we say, is if you're a high earner you're earning over, call it 200,000 a year, you need to be maxing out all the potential retirement savings vehicles that you have available to you. So that would be a Roth IRA, a 401k, an IRA, well, 403B, whatever your employer offers, you need to be maxing it out. And if you're a business owner, you need to be maxing out some kind of solo 401k. There's other plans we could put in place for business owners, uh, more on the defined uh, contribution side. If you're making over 200000 you need to be maxing out your plans. in of story. Josh.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, I also think that to go along with maxing out your retirement benefits, also taking advantage of all of the other benefits that, let's say, your employer is offering, right? Doing a complete benefits review, of not only maxing out retirement benefits, but if it's also on the insurance side, medical, life, disability, like making sure you're reviewing all of those. I think they just kind of go hand in hand because, you know, when you get your packet through open enrollment, it has it all in there. Take advantage of all of it,
0: right? Yeah, totally. And then to go back on retirement savings, Brent, why is retirement for, you know, this generation coming up gonna be so different than that that previous generation that may have retired in the, you know, nineteen eighties or early nineteen nineties?
1: That's a great question. I think the biggest problem is is that this generation retiring is gonna have so much less fixed guaranteed income that they're gonna to have to fill the gap between their income and their expenses. And that gap is widening tremendously. Most people that are going to retire over the next 35, 40 years are no longer gonna have pensions, obviously. And it's gonna be either just social security and then everything you've saved. So you better start early and you better save a lot because that's gonna be what you're gonna live off of when you get to that last chapter, those last, you know, chapters of life.
0: And the corporations that still offer pensions, I mean, it seems like I get a client with it. A new pension buyout at least once a month and they're buying them out and getting rid of them
1: yep and they and they make it look so attractive to take that lump sum and most people are attracted to it so they just jump on it but you know obviously state and government employees they have pensions and and that's sort of a different planning style and strategy that we go through with those clients but if you don't have that five or six seven thousand dollars guaranteed a month well you better start saving, because that's the only way you're going to receive that or have that is by your retirement accounts.
0: Yeah, I I think I I saw, I mean, probably the projection today for the average boomer, I'd say, is you're going to need somewhere between one to 1.5 million. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for actually millennials, for their kids, right, so people under 40, you're probably going to want to have at least $3 million put away.
1: Right, and it could seem so much to so many people. If you're just listening, you're like, wow, how am I ever going to do that? But actually, it's very attainable you can do it. Just start saving, understand the investment picks that you're going to have in your, in your options, and do some financial planning. You will get there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Josh, anything else to add?
2: No, I, I think you guys wrapped it up well. And I think just to kind of explain you know, the difference between the two styles, if we're talking about that employer pension or that defined benefit style of retirement that the older generation has had, the employer took on all the risk. They took on all the planning behind it and that's why there wasn't much planning for that older generation, right? All of that's falling on the employee now through the contributions to 401Ks and IRAs. So do your research, commit to financial planning because no one's going to do it for you. And before it was kind of done for you, now it's not anymore. So. That's just kind of my uh, public service announcement. <laughs> do your own research, plan for your future because you know no one else is going
0: to do it for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well put, Joshua. All right. So those are the kind of four Bedrock staples of a person's financial plan. I do want to spend some time though talking about the kind of like advanced strategies that I see a lot of people try and do before they do the four say, um, retirement debt emergency fund and budgeting. Brent, right, you want to kick it off with some mistakes or things you see on the advanced strategy side that people try and do too early or too soon?
1: The most common mistake that I see that people make is on rental properties. Most people will either take out a mortgage on their house or they have some money on the side so they go buy a rental property. And they think their rental property is doing great, but once you start calculating what they're receiving rental income, what some of the expenses are, next thing you know, your either rate of return is extremely low or you're actually losing money and all it takes is you having one bad renter to ruin that whole investment and you shouldn't even have been in a position in the first place to be buying a rental property because obviously you should hold off until you do full financial planning to buy a rental property and sure it makes sense. So I think that's the most common strategy mistake that I see most people make.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Rental properties, uh, you know, it's one of those things where they hear like, oh, my neighbor, he's a multimillionaire. He has You know 15 rentals i could do that he's he's not that smart but you know one he's probably leveraged through the roof and two you don't know how much money he's truly making on each rental right i mean at
1: the end of the day there's a rate of return
0: yeah and there's all there's people who try and rent single family homes and there's people who are renting multi-family units or big office complexes they're two different things right so just know which one you are right josh what mistakes do you see (coughs) um
2: I also see not defining an investment philosophy and this goes hand in hand with the, the common stock picker or day trader. You know, I'm going to invest money finally and I'm going to pick stocks, pick common stocks and I'm going to pick the winners to you know, really try to make a lot of money. And I see that as being one big mistake with investors. They're not tracking real, their real rate of return amongst their common stocks. Uh, There's no real defined philosophy behind picking the common stocks and it's leading to a negative outcome and very expensive. So if you want to avoid (laughs) the headache, you know, do your research on looking up an investment philosophy that fits your financial plan and stay away from the stock picking.
0: Totally. And for those common stock pickers, usually, and I don't want this to come off rude, but usually you're coming a little bit late to the party. So right now, uh, really for the last year, it's been, you know, people calling in, hey, can you help me buy pot stocks? Like we, we want to invest in marijuana or, um, you know, two, three years ago, it was Bitcoin. Oh, yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, that turned out well. Um, right now, I mean, we're at the end of the year, right? And we're coming up on the end of the decade. So you're going to start seeing lists list of the best performing stocks. Of the decade, and all these people are going to see these lists. They're going to see. I, I know for sure Netflix is on the list. Mm-hmm. I think it's up like two thousand percent. Now they're going to call in. Oh, I want to you know buy Netflix. It was up two thousand percent over the last ten years. It's going to do that again. So yeah, it doesn't really work like that. Yeah,
1: guess what? Well, guess what? It's not going to do next year. <laughs> <laughs> You're just chasing returns.
0: Absolutely You're chasing the return Yeah, um, and then you know some other ones where we see that are advanced that. People kind of get in over their skis or on the private REIT side. Again, going back to real estate, just really not a good investment for people who don't have the basics under control. Right. And then also annuities, right? Right, Brent?
1: Yeah, I mean, annuities is something that a lot of people are getting kind of trapped into because um, they do obviously pay a commission to somebody selling them, but these contracts can be very complex. They can be extremely costly in fees. They are long term, uh, they lack liquidity, and it makes it very complicated for someone to plan a proper retirement with some of these annuities where you're going to get locked up for so long. You have low cap rates. And most people really don't have a good understanding about how these contracts are going to impact their financial plan long term. I would tell people to be very mindful of getting into any annuity contract unless it's coming from a fee-only advisor who's not be getting compensated. For that contract because there are fee-only annuities now that do not pay the advisor commission which are so much better for the client and you have to be so careful with these annuity contracts
0: yeah and i know we did that whole whole long show on annuities where we went through the basics to kind of how, how the industry works and it was a really popular show so if you are interested in learning more about annuities you're getting those steak dinner invites uh, you know, go back and find that, that show on our feed and give it a listen because we think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, Josh, any other advanced strategies?
2: No, I think we, we wrapped it up good on advanced strategies, but I think one thing that's important is, and the theme of the advanced strategies is just trying to make it too complicated. Like, keep it simple. Like, don't try to make the strategies and reinvent the wheel. Like, I think the sim- when you're starting out or you're trying to build these foundation step, um, you know, building blocks, the simpler the better instead of trying to make it more complex.
0: I agree. Brent, any parting thoughts?
1: No, I think we we had a lot of these important uh, one-on-one tools. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think what's important is meeting with the advisor, doing strategy meetings, doing the implementation, doing the monitoring, and it will lead to a valuable
2: outcome.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, it's one of those things, get the basics down first, and, start graduating yourself to the more advanced strategies i mean you're not going to do algebra or calculus if you can't add correct so start with the basics even though sometimes they might come off as a little boring you could try
2: but it might not be that successful
0: that's true you could try <laughs> um all right well anything else for today's show
2: no are we doing uh,
0: recommends today no there's no recommend so our holiday gift guide uh, just just got published. You can go to rpawealth.com/blog um, and check out our holiday gift guide. We have recommendations from the three of us and then our wives as well. So some some good gifts that you could get uh, the loved ones in your life.
2: Awesome. How how can
1: people send us like a message on who their favorite gift recommendations came from?
0: They could email info at rpawealth.com. That's i n f o at rpawealth.com and they could vote for their their favorite gift. They
2: could also comment on the blog. Yeah, and what about Facebook? Yeah, you
0: could comment on Facebook or the blog as well.
2: We'll monitor all channels to to keep track. I hope mine's the
1: favorite. I'm competitive also, so I'm (laughs) hoping that... Because we got ours, we got our wives, so it's like maybe whose family is the best, too.
0: Yeah, well, Haley actually ended up writing more than um, all of us put together, so (laughs) she's just just a a little overachiever, that one.
1: (laughs) go on there and vote for uh, who's your favorite
0: gift recommender alright uh, well I think this is our last show of, of, of 2019 so thank you very much for listening and we wish you a, a happy holidays and a merry Christmas
2: looking forward to 2020 and all the new great shows we
0: have coming out next year yeah me too me too
2: and, and thank you to all of our listeners in 2019 and looking forward to putting some new podcasts out in 2020 yeah and happy holidays,
0: everyone. Merry Christmas
3: and Happy New Year's. RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor public disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide Form ADV Part 2A, from Brochure, and 2B, Brochure Supplement, to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcasts. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.